Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. God our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature. In your church, gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love for our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. I was having a little trouble deciding with both of these councils. Um, there's going to be sort of two different sets of topics, um, the stuff going on in Europe, and then the old thing that we've been talking about for weeks of the relations between the East and the West, Constantinople and Rome, and that trying to decide whether it's best to jump from one to the other and back to the other, and I decided, why not? Whether it's better, I guess, to say stick with the linear um, chronological sequence or rather the thematic sequence um, would be a better way of putting it. And I think linearly also, so we will be going through the linear chronological sequence. Now, um, that the two councils that we're going to talk about are going to be the two great medieval councils. That they're probably, not probably, they are the two most important councils of the Middle Ages. Um, and the second one is going to be the one that's really going to talk about a lot about East-West relations, and it's going to be very important to that. But a lot of the background to get to that one happens before this one. So what I want to do is just try to bridge a little bit from where we were last week to where we are this week. So we ended last week with, um, I can't even remember what the last council we did. I get all, uh, see, this is amazing. I even talk about them. We still get mixed up over third, Constantinople, fourth, Nicaea. Um, Second Nicaea, Nicaea that's what it was. Um, Second Nicaea, the iconoclast controversy with the image breakers. Now, um, what happened shortly after that is there's going to be a, two more ecumenical councils that take place over in the east that are, have a united eastern and western church at the councils. They, um, we're not going to go through those because they basically end up rehashing the same, some of the same problems that they had been dealing with for centuries. They're rehashing and trying to stomp out the Monophysites still. They're trying to deal with the iconoclast still. It's the same heresies that have driven those first six councils. They um, are going to contribute to the next two also. That it's the, basically when I said that the first, the six councils all either had to do with a problem in Constantinople or Alexandria, that that's sort of the same theme, that those first eight are all, for the most part, Eastern problems. Now... What happens, though, is I want to give a little bit of the background of the split between East and West to be able to explain why these councils are going to be ecumenical councils, but the church is going to be fundamentally a Western church at this time because the Eastern church is going to have gone into schism. They're going to have split away. And though if you go to St. George's down the street on their little timeline in the basement, it was us that split away, according to them, but that's okay. Anyway... Um, a good background of it is a guy named Photius, and 
Photius, and this is give you a good timeline, this is in the middle of the 800s, that he's going to take them into schism for the first time. And it's an important, this is 886. Um, and it's important that, remember, like I said before, that in the history of the church, the, the archbishops of Constantinople spent more time in schism than not in schism. Um, they're constantly getting excommunicated, um, excommunicating the entire Western church, things like that, and then coming back. Now, what happened in the 800s, in, there was this good archbishop of Constantinople. I don't know a ton about him. His name was Ignatius. And he did something very unpopular, kind of like John the Baptist. He dared to rebuke a sinning politician. And so the end result was that they had that the politicians, the emperor, had Ignatius, the archbishop, deposed and replaced with his crony, Photius. Photius wasn't even a priest at the time, so they quickly ordained him a priest and had him ordained a bishop and made him the new archbishop of Constantinople. And this caused major problems with the West. Um, the Pope said, you cannot do this. Um, and he applied a lot of pressure on the East. And part of the problem, too, the, the political quagmire of Constantinople is just a mess. So you have one emperor who's getting Photius appointed. And then before long, he's getting deposed by another emperor who's going to um, be more than happy to depose Photius, but then the other emperor will come back at another time and bring him back, and it's just an absolute mess over in Constantinople. But the end result is that Photius ends up, all said and done, as the archbishop of Constantinople, that he actually ends up legitimately as the archbishop because once the real one dies, he gets appointed again. And Photius is a real piece of work. He is a, considered a hero by many Eastern Orthodox monks. Um, and, but what he did was he basically is going to contribute more to the breaking up of Christendom than any man probably in history. In that he, first of all, what had happened in the West was, everyone knows, has heard of the old Filioque controversy, Filioque, that in the, whoops, in the Nicene Creed, when it talks about the Holy Spirit, it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, in the original text. So what had happened, though, in Spain in the 700s was there was still the Arian heresy, which we learned all about, was still hanging about in Spain. That the Arians, after it, their Arius had been um, exiled after the Arian heresy had been condemned. Remember, they had sent their missionaries off to the Germanic tribes, and they had converted a lot of them to Arianism. Well, some of those Germanic tribes, in particular the Visigoths, ended up living in Spain. And so Arianism was still hanging out in Spain. So in an effort to stamp out Arianism, a local council, not an ecumenical council, a local council in the city of Toledo... Um, not to be confused with Toledo, Ohio. It's more, always more fun if you say Toledo, too. It just sounds cooler. Um, Toledo um, added the words filioque and the son in talking about how the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son because they're trying to emphasize that the Son is equally God. And that is an important Trinitarian theological point that the Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. And actually, interestingly, this had been preached, had been taught, 
by every church father um, that the Eastern fathers taught this, but they just simply expressed it in a slightly different way. How they expressed it was that the Holy Spirit came from the Father through the Son, but that there's one principal cause, but it goes through, meaning there's only one procession, but it goes through both persons. Um, and it's in the West, they're basically saying the same thing. There was not a, an actual theological dispute over this. But Photius, who hated the West, hated Rome, hated the supremacy of the Pope, he actually created a theological dispute over this and started hyping up that the West was somehow arguing that the Holy Spirit had two processions rather than one. That the West is arguing that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son as two separate processions, which is theologically wrong. And the, the position that he was saying that the West was teaching was a theologically wrong position. But the problem is that's not what was actually being taught. And so, farther than that, he um, basically was condemning every Western practice from using unleavened bread to having unmarried clergy. And what he ended up doing was he ended up putting his supporters and everything, building an entire network within the monasteries of the East. And this is important because... He actually, at one point, I'll tell you why it's important in a second. At one point, he actually ends up excommunicating the entire Western church and taking the, the church in the East into schism for 10 years in what's called the Phocian schism. Um, but he sets up this network within the monasteries, and it's really important because to this very day, the majority of the anti-Catholic vitriol of the East is present within the monasteries. So even if they were trying to reunite the churches to this day, the problem that the, the Archbishop of Constantinople would face if he was to try to reconcile with the churches would be from all the monks of the East. And part of it is because nobody holds a grudge like a Greek. And, they, they, and, they, um, and the monasteries to this day have, they have a disturbingly un-Christian hatred towards the West and towards the papacy. Now, um, now it's important, so, because a little less than 200 years later, you get another guy appointed Archbishop of Constantinople who is one of these anti-Western monks from one of these Phocian monasteries that um, sort of come out of his heritage. And this guy is named Michael Hold on a second. I can't speak and spell properly at the same time. Well, I can't spell properly, period, but. All right. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but anyway, of Cerularius, Michael Cerularius. And he's the new Archbishop of Constantinople. He is one of these anti-Western monks. And he also had a tremendous vitriol for the papacy and for the West. And he went so far as to, um, to um, basically, he denied that any mass said with unleavened bread was even a valid mass, um, that he's the one that famously what they end up doing is he ends up closing all of the Latin churches in Constantinople. And this is a big thing, because remember that Constantinople was a big trading center. So there was actually a lot of Latin Western churches, in particular Venice, owned a whole huge section of the city that was their trading 
um, quarter. And a lot of the east-west relations is really going to boil down to the Venice versus Constantinople rivalry, um, that they were vying to who was the political and economic power of the Mediterranean. And so a lot of the hatred of the west is going to be Constantinople's jealousy and anger against the Venetians, and not that the Venetians always behaved well either, um, but it's that that's going to be really what a lot of it's about. It's a political thing. Constantinople versus Venice, and the Latin church represents Venice. So anyway, um, he went, Michael Cerularius, he closed all the Latin churches in Constantinople, including going through and actually desecrating all of the consecrated hosts that were done with unleavened bread, because he didn't think that they were real consecrations. And anyway, it caused, you can imagine, a bit of a uproar, and so in return, the the West, that there were still Byzantine churches in Italy, that they took over all of the Byzantine churches in Italy. And so finally, Michael Cerularius, he, was, he wrote some really insulting stuff um, to the Pope, and so the Pope sent some representatives to go talk to him, and when they got there to talk to him, he refused to speak to the Pope's representatives, so that's what, instead, what they did was they went in the middle of Mass into the Hagia Sophia up to the altar and placed the pronouncement of excommunication to Michael Cerularius. So in his response was, no, well, I excommunicate, I excommunicate you first. Um, and anyway, that's the start of the, the true great schism of East versus West. And it's slowly, actually, and it gets healed a couple of different times, um, but then it but that antipathy of East versus West really grows. grows. So, you're not suggesting that the, the, the schism was caused by unleavened bread? Mm-mm. It was... It was the Constantinople not wanting to be number two. <laughs> simple, I mean, simple as that. The, the, the idea of not, uh, not wanting to be number two and not wanting to accept papal supremacy. And there, I mean, there's a whole lot more that gets in. You get, it seems like everything else is just sort of like excuses. Um, and it gets worse in the, as time goes on. And that Venice versus Constantinople thing really explains a lot of it, which, I mean, you get, frankly, which draws us to when we're going to get into the beginning of the Fourth Lateran Council, that the guy that's going to be the pope at that time, Innocent III, we'll talk more about in a second, that it's during his reign that the, that the um, relations break down to their, the lowest ebb, and that's when finally at one point, because frankly Venice and Constantinople had been at war multiple times, that you had at one point you had the Byzantines who decided that they were going to confiscate all Venetian property in their empire and kidnap every single Venetian within their empire. So they took 30,000 Venetian hostages. Um, and in response, they had huge wars going back and forth, the Venetians versus Constantinople. So what happened, though, is the famous, the infamous Fourth Crusade was that when the Venetians were leading one of the Crusades in the beginning of the 1200s, 1204, that the emperor, I mean, you ended up with a sort of, it's a bit of a mess, but you have uh, an exiled emperor, because that's what they loved to do, was to kick out one emperor at the extent of another, who told the Venetians that if you restore me to power, 
I will send troops to help in the crusade. So the Venetians did that. They restored him to power with their very powerful navy and army. And after they had done so, then they were waiting around for their resources, and he got deposed a second time. And then they finally got to a point where, like, this is ridiculous. We're just taking Constantinople ourselves. And so the Venetians ended up conquering Constantinople and making a, a little Latin um, empire in the east where you had a Venetian um, Latin emperor for a while. And, but you can imagine this didn't sit well with the locals of Constantinople, with the Greeks, and all it did was cement the hatred and the suspicion of east versus west. Does that make sense? That yeah. That was the fourth crusade, but they never end up going on crusade. And it wasn't the so much of the crusade doing it. It was just simply Venice versus Constantinople. And there was a lot of history between those two. Um, but you ever want a really fascinating book to read, Thomas Madden's History of Venice. Um, it's absolutely fantastic, particularly as an American, because we always learn about the different countries that influenced America and the writing of the Constitution, etc. And we often forget that the government that the American Constitution was most based off of is that of Venice. And the re sorry, I was saying the reason why is because Venice is the longest lasting republic in the history of the world. All right. In the East. In the East, they were always completely together, and it causes a lot of the mess. The West is going to be very different, which actually we'll get to right now. Okay. Now, which brings us to Innocent III. Um, it, it, yeah. Uh, the author of History of Venice, Thomas Madden. Thomas Madden, M-A-D-D-E-N. History professor at the University of St. Louis. It's fantastic. Also probably the top expert on the Crusades. No, wrong Madden. All right. Um, now, um, so Innocent III is the most important pope of the Middle Ages. That the most exciting stuff going on in the Middle Ages is all during the reign of Innocent III. He is the, the pope of, that brought the church to the greatest extent of sort of papal authority. You had um, him rebuking the king of France at one point for divorcing his wife and bringing him groveling, doing the same in Spain. You had him doing the same with good old wicked King John in England uh, when he refused to accept the archbishop that he had pointed up there. That this was the greatest extent of the church exercising its influence over the state and, and the church winning, um, as opposed to later on where the church is going to be just completely steamrolled by the state in the West. At, under Innocent III, when he spoke, kings actually listened. And there's a lot of amazing stuff that takes place during his reign. So we talked about the Fourth Crusade, but it's under him that you're going to have new saints like St. Francis and St. Dominic are going to found their orders. Um, that there's a, there was a lot of great stuff, but he's going to consider his greatest work the Fourth Lateran Council, which some people have talked about other than the Council of Trent those being the two most important councils in the history of the church. Um, I mean, you can't say that the necessary one is more important than another because when they, if you, there isn't for specific councils, like the Council of Nicaea, 
you would have trouble dealing with Arianism, but for the amount that it actually accomplishes and does and helps develop doctrine, it's right up there with Trent. Now, his two chief tasks, um, in a sense, was he really wanted to um, do another crusade, which didn't end up, well, the Fourth Crusade did not end up with the end results that he wanted, um, to retake the Holy Land, but then he was also a very vigorous um, um, reformer, and he wanted to really reform church life that, and the abuses that had snuck in. Now, what gives a little bit of the background, though, is it's sort of intricately tied with the history of the Dominican Order, and that there was this heresy in southern France that the Fourth Lateran Council is in many ways going to be directly called in response to, because remember that most councils are in response to a specific heresy. And this one is the heresy of Albigensianism. The Albigensian heresy, sometimes called um, the Cathars, same, same people, that basically there was, this was this heresy in southern France that was Manichaeanism in the, in the early church come back again that these were the people that they thought that, you know, there's two gods. You have the evil material god of the Old Testament that created the material world and enslaved all of our perfect souls within bodies. And then you have the good god, the spiritual god of the New Testament. And so they have this dichotomy like physical world bad, spiritual world good. And so they were actually very highly organized. They had their own churches. They had their own bishops. And they had a very sort of simple belief system and that is that anything involving the physical world is evil. So having more children, evil, because you're just enslaving more people in bodies. Um, feasting, eating, having material possessions, all evil. Um, the greatest thing you can actually do in your life is commit suicide. And they actually had a systematic um, sort of program whereby they would help you commit suicide if you want to, help you starve yourself to death, and basically they would... Um, take away all your food if you had chosen that noble thing of starving yourself to death, and they would help you um, not reach for something to eat and actually help you follow through. Um, weren't they charitable? And um, it was a terrible heresy. And the problem was that southern France was not equipped to deal with it, that all the local lords, that there was a complete mess. Um, and part of the reason was that it was a very, very, um, co- I would say not cosmopolitan, um, sort of a, 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 a cocktail of cultures in southern France at the time. And part of what we forget is that Spain at this time, they were still trying to kick out the Muslims out of Spain, that the entire southern half of Spain is controlled by the Muslims. And actually, southern France at the time had an enormous Muslim population. Um, or an equivalent very similar to the southern France today. They had a huge Muslim population, and their lifestyle and influence had actually spread to a lot of the local lords, so it was actually um, the norm for the local lords of southern France to have harems and to, um, and to live like um, oriental sultans. And you had, on top of that, you had bunches of bishops that simply were not doing their job of preaching. You had priests that were not um, living good lifestyles, didn't know um, the faith very well in order to defend the faith. And so you ended up just sort of a mess in southern France. So 
the, as we know, the, the Dominican order was founded in, to combat the Albigensians by St. Dominic in order to create priests that are going to be able to have no reproach against them and that they are going to own nothing. Um, and therefore, because when people would see the Albigensians who are living lives of poverty because they believe the material world is wrong, but they're still living lives of poverty and people didn't know better would say, oh, they, they, aren't they living like the apostles? Um, and as opposed to when you have a bishop who's not, that there might not necessarily be something morally wrong with the bishop and how he's living. But for the sake of converting people, they're the, they're the two are not equivalent. And so they, the, this is why they sent in the Dominicans who own nothing, because when it comes time to convert people, they don't have that stumbling block in front of them. And they're well-educated. They um, are able to preach. But then the other part of the Albigensian heresy, though, is that Innocent III called for a crusade against the Albigensians, and in particular against the southern lords that ended up actually supporting the Albigensians. And this turns into a bit of a mess because the northern French lords think that some of them are motivated by I, probably some good, some good, um, I have some good motivation, but... Um, some of them are like, great, this is an awesome opportunity to, earn, to get a bunch of land in southern France. Who wouldn't want a bunch of land in southern France? And so anyway, the, the famous guy that leads the crusade is Simon de Montfort. And he's going to lead a huge crusade, especially against the Duke of Toulouse down in um, southwestern France. And the way that the crusaders behave it's not very charitable, and they're not going to be restrained by the church telling them to be merciful, that the church had specific um, rules, and they just ignored the church flat. So what the Fourth Lateran Council, two of the big things that it's going to address is, one, address the teachings of Albigensianism, but two, address how to deal with heretics in an orderly fashion that it gives them true justice and actually gives them mercy and justice um, so that they're not, so you don't just get um, the playground justice that, the, the, um, that they're going to get from the Crusaders. Does that make sense? Ah, so he calls the Fourth Lateran Council um, and they do, they go through and they condemn the teachings of Albigensianism. They go through, and he actually, with it, they restrain um, the, what the Crusaders are supposed to be doing. So they actually call off, as part of it, Simon de Montfort, who is trying to take over the entirety of the south of France. And they actually like, are able to restrain him from, go, from going too much out of control. They um, systematically go through what the rules are going to be for how you're going to treat heretics and how, I mean, it's actually a pretty lenient way when they go through and say, okay, heretics, they're going to have to prove their innocence. But, and as good Americans, we tend to say, well, prove their innocence. Aren't they innocent until proven guilty? But proving your innocence is actually pretty easy for a heretic. All you have to do is accept the creeds of the church. Um, and that proves that you believe them. But, the, and they go through and they're, they're give, they have time for repentance. They have times to, um, 
to take their teachings back, that they do give a very systematic and orderly um, means for dealing with heretics and trying to uh, give them justice. Um, so justice even for heretics. Now, um, then uh, another thing it does is actually it goes through some political matters at the time, and one of them I find interesting is that it rebukes the the um, the barons of England for forcing King John to sign the Magna Carta, and declares the Magna Carta null and void, <laughs> um, which is interesting. But um, then one of the things that it does is it goes through and starts addressing ab- abuses within the church. It goes through and addresses abuses of the clergy and how they've been behaving and the restrictions it places upon the clergy for how they're supposed to live are, I mean, quite astonishing at times. Um, when he goes through and it basically goes through and says, that, you know what, they can't go hunting. They have to, they can only wear very simple clothes and it gives like requirements of what they can wear. It gives requirements of how they can travel and it basically... Um, Give you an example. It says, clerics are to be soberly dressed in their garments, neither too long nor too short, and fastened up to the neck, not of red or green cloth, no embroidery on gloves or shoes, no gilt spurs, bridle, saddles, or harness. Bishops are to wear linen unless they are monks, in which case they can to keep the habit of their order. Um, they are not to act as surgeons, <laughs> uh, military employment. They are not to bless ordeals. You remember the old medieval idea of the trial by ordeal? Um, where you're like, it's kind of like Monty Python, throw her in the pond, and if she floats, then she's um, a witch. Um, that, that was an actual problem that was a result of an old Germanic practice that th- if you basically put someone in a life or death situation, the gods will sort it out whether the person's guilty or not. Yeah, and so this is the church saying that priests can never be involved in that because some priests who are sort of superstitious and said, well, won't God um, judge the person if they're guilty or not? And so the church is putting the smack down on the superstition, and this is really where that idea of the ordeal ends. That, that called... Trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal. Yeah. Um, um, but, I mean, it goes through and it addresses education of clergy. It establishes that every single cathedral has to have a school for training of priests so that they actually know what they're talking about. Um, and this is an important thing, too, that Innocent III, he's also famously, um, it's under him that they founded the University of Paris and really started the university system of Europe. Um, but for the training of clergy, they have whole sections where they go through monastic reform. I mean, this is, other than the Council of Trent, this is the great reform council, where they go through and reform every aspect of church life to try to just hack out all of the abuses that had crept in over the centuries. Um, yeah? Well, he goes in, goes in waves. The time of Charlemagne, they were very well educated because that was one of the great things of the Carolingian Renaissance was to educate the clergy again because they hadn't been because you had a bunch of poorly educated clergy. But as time goes on, 
that, I mean, that actually it was at that time they had called for cathedrals to have schools, but not all of them do it. And you, I mean, that was a, a large portion of the problem at the time. So they're trying to, to reestablish that. Um, but this is the, actually the first use ever of the word transubstantiation is in this council. Uh, when talking about the sacraments and when they go through the Eucharist, they use the word transubstantiation. Um, which actually upset a lot of people at the time because it is a, a word that's not in the Bible, but they're just using Greek philosophy um, to try to explain what actually happens in the Eucharist. And it's going to get fully explained uh, half a century later on by Thomas Aquinas, who's going to use that term from the council for explaining fully what happens um, during the consecration. Um, the, one of the other main things they do when talking about the laity this is when they set forth that every single person within the church has to go to confession once a year and has to receive communion at least once a year during the Easter season. And it's not before, it's, you still had to go to Mass every Sunday, but the problem was people had, were so, um, I guess, overwhelmed by their own sinfulness that you had people that were just never receiving communion because they never felt worthy enough to receive communion. And so the church was saying, you know, nobody's ever worthy enough to receive communion, but you have to at least once a year. Um, and actually, I mean, it was pretty harsh, too, that if you do not receive communion once a year or go to confession once a year, that you could not be buried in a Catholic church, and you are just, um, that you are very clearly not in communion with the church. Um, I mean, that's something that we obviously don't do anymore. Um, And, um, I mean, it goes through the, and reaffirms the idea of the, the sacramental seal in confession. And this is when it lays forth that if a priest ever actually um, says what someone does in confession, they actually, their, their punishment is they have to go into a monastery to do penance for the rest of their lives um, with, for that one sin. And one of the things that it does go through, too, which is important, when you brought up about the relationship between the church and the state, is it the Fourth Lateran Council also very clearly goes through the election of bishops and says that the state can have no part in the appointing and electing of bishops. That it very much sets forth a, this, a, a true sense of a separation of church and state at this time, that this church cannot interfere, I mean the state cannot interfere in the workings of the church which is very different than what's going on in the East and a lot of the problem of what's going on in the East. So any questions about the Fourth Lateran Council before we switch to Second Lyon? It's more fun to say that way, Lyon. Like all French things, say it through your nose and it's more fun. I used to tell my students when they were ever they were trying to pronounce something French that I never took a day of French in my life, but if you just add a little oh, 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 at the end, it'll just sound more authentic. So you can go Lyon, oh, oh, oh. All right. Um, all right. Now, the Second Council of Lyon. That this is going to tie in a little bit more with that Eastern stuff. We're talking about the relationship between Constantinople and Rome because the main thing that it's going to do is going to be focused on a schism. That's going to be the, in trying to heal the schism. That's going to be the main focus. And to give a little bit of the background, that the 
papacy during the 1200s, you had a lot of pretty decent popes. There was no scoundrels that were popes. But one of the things that had happened was that the pope got tied up in a lot of political matters. That for better or for worse, the pope, he owned central Italy, the papal states. He was the temporal ruler. And there was good in this and that he was, had a little bit of independence. Um, but there was a bad in this in that it led to continual political clashes with the Holy Roman Emperors, the Germans, once again. And what happened at the end of the 1270s is you had a new pope who's actually going to be a saint, St. Gregory X. And he's going to try to get the church out of the temporal business as much as he can. That, and so one of the things that had happened was that the pope had ended up with the kingdom of Naples as his benefice, that it belonged to the pope. And this was a big, important kingdom, so it includes Naples and Sicily, the whole southern part of Italy and Sicily. But he didn't want it. And so he actually spent a long time trying to give it away, and nobody would take it. <laughs> um, poor Sicily and Naples. But anyway, the mistake, though, is he ends up giving it to this guy named Charles of Anjou, who's going to be nothing but a thorn in the side for the church. So in many ways, it would have been better if the Pope never had. But he ends up giving it to this guy, Charles of Anjou, who's going to spend the entirety of his life trying to dominate the church in Italy and causing mischief and mayhem. And one of the things that he really wanted to do, as a little background, is he wanted to be the emperor of Constantinople. That was his great scheming dream, was to take over the Byzantine Empire and be the new emperor. And he's going to launch invasions of the East. He's going to do all sorts of stuff. So just remember that fact. So, Charles of Anjou. Gregory X is a great guy. I mean, he's a saint. So, but he's kind of stuck in with a problem. He's trying to deal with Greg, Gregory or Charles of Anjou in the South, um, who he had given it to. And it was mostly through the schemings of this French cardinal who was best friends with Charles that Charles had ended up with the kingdom of Sicily, um, Naples and Sicily. Um, and that's, that, that French cardinal is important because he's going to become pope later on and cause very lasting damages as pope um, and not get good results because from Dante. Um, but anyway, Charles in the south, he wants Constantinople. Now, anyway, what ended up happening was um, that... There was a new emperor at the time in the East. Um, he was not a particularly religiously motivated man, but his name's simply Michael VIII. I don't need to write Michael. Michael VIII. Actually, I will. That way I can keep pointing out to who I'm talking about. Michael VIII. Now, Michael recognized that the power of Constantinople was very much on the the wane, that it was, that Constantinople was not going to be able to hold out against the Muslims on its own. That if he was going to, to restore the power of Constantinople and keep from being conquered by the Muslims, he was going to need the help of the West. And so he was very interested in ending the Great Schism, the emperor. Now, so, 
what ends up happening was when he gets elected, he actually writes to the Pope, Gregory, and in a very, um, the first thing that he does was he writes a letter to the Pope, and actually here he goes a good way of saying it, that he, in, the, in the letter he says that he's the Pope's most obedient son, and the Pope was the sovereign bishop of the whole church, Peter's successor, that he's trying to do everything he can to try to heal the bridge between the East and the West. Sucking up. He, he's sucking up, exactly. Now, um, the problem, and one of the reasons he wants to do this too, is he recognizes that Charles of Anjou is gunning for him. And he knows that he is down there. The, the, the emperor of the East knows this. And he does not want the Pope on Charles' side. So it's not just the, the Muslims he's afraid of. It's Charles that he's afraid of. And he thinks, you know, the best possible thing we can do. And he was not a religious man whatsoever. But he's like, for smart reasons, let's end this schism and make friends with the Pope. So the Pope decides, you know what? Ending the schism would be a great thing for the unity of Christianity. And for all the right reasons, he says, let's do it. So he decides to hold an ecumenical council as the means of ending the schism. And that's what the Second Council of Lyon is called for. They meet in Lyon, France, because they want to get away from Charles so that his influence is not there. And that's why they have it there, not in Rome. And basically... What they do was they go through, um, and it starts off with an address from the Pope, and he goes actually, because Gregory was a great reformer, so he, he goes through and he rebukes all of these um, different um, groups within the church. It actually made me think a little bit of Pope Francis. He's very famous for his, his rebukes of the different parties. He'll say the rebukes of the bishops, the rebukes of the priests. Gregory was very similar personality. He, was, he, he blasts the bishops and their lifestyles here. He blasts the priests and everything over here. But he was actually still decently well-liked. Um, and anyway, what ends up happening, though, was they're a little late, but the Eastern Roman Emperor and the Archbishop of Constantinople and a bunch of bishops from the East, they all show up at the Council of Lyon. And at the Council of Lyon, they go through a statement of faith, and they sign it together, and they basically, they go through and systematically end the schism between East and West. And the first thing, actually, they went through was they wrote a joint venture, or not joint venture, a joint um, declaration on the Filioque, called the Filioque Canon. And here you go, I can actually read it, where the... the the definition that they use is they say, we firmly profess that the Holy Ghost proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, not as from two principles, but as from one principle, not as by two spirations, but as by a single spiration. This is what the Holy Roman Church, the mother and teacher of all the faithful, has hitherto professed, preached, and taught. This is what, is what it holds, preaches, professes, and teaches. This is truly what the unchanging judgment of the Orthodox fathers and doctors, the Latins and Greeks, equally holds. But since there are some men who, through ignorance of the aforesaid unbreakable truth, have fallen into various errors, we, desiring to close the road of errors of this sort, with the sacred council assenting, 
condemn and reprobate all those who presume to deny that the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, or who rashly dare to assert that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son as from two principles and not from one principle. So, the, anyone that says that the Filioque controversy is still an issue to this day is it, because they do not understand the Filioque, where the East, very solemnly, represented by the Archbishop of Constantinople, affirms that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that it was in many ways just a misunderstanding of how they were, they were putting it. But then, after that, they go through and they accept a systematic um, uh, definition or a doctrine, that's the word I'm looking for, profession of faith, thank you, um, profession of faith where they go through all of the different Western practices that the East had condemned, such as using unleavened bread, where they go through every single one of them, and the archbishop and the emperor say, you know what, that is right, it's okay, it's okay. And the end result is that the Eastern Church is brought back into full communion with the Catholic Church for a while. Um, and there's a couple of other things that the, that the council does after that. It goes through and does more matters of church dis discipline, more matters of reform. Um, one of the things they have to address is that a lot of the Western bishops were really mad at the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And the reason why is because that monasteries always before had been way out in the, in the boonies, but they were setting, they set up by their nature their monasteries in the hearts of the cities. And the problem is that their monasteries, that their preachers were a lot better, their priests were a lot holier. So when it came time for vocations and it came time for donations, that people were going to them and not to their parish, um, their local parish. And so the bishops were very irritated by this. And so basically the Pope says, too bad. Um, if, if you want more vocations, just get holier. Um, and, but they go through and they condemn a whole lot of other things. They actually they go through and explain and condemn the church's prohibitions on usury. They actually have a, some great parts where they go through and they condemned corrupt lawyers. And they set out the pr proper um, guidelines to be an a, a Catholic lawyer. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff like that. Um, but anyway, oh, the, one of the other main things that it does too was it establishes a new means by which to elect a pope. And that in order to try to make it as impartial as possible and to get the state and the schemings of politicians out of the papal elections. And so they set forth what's called the papal conclave, the, the means by which we elect a pope today, is given at the Second Council of Lyon. Now, No, nothing about the United States Supreme Court. Now, um, the problem is, so we say, well, it ended the schism. Well, what happened? To give a little bit of the, makes me think of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, um, is that the emperor went back. He was met with fierce, fierce resistance by the people, and especially the monks, who were more than happy to lead violent protests and riots, as well as more than a few. And he actually stood by it very firmly. He did plenty of 
um, arrests, executions, exiles of people that were protesting against the reuniting of the church. And the end result, though, is it's actually going to be a pope that's going to ruin it. And that a cup, the way, if Gregory had survived, things might have lasted. But the problem was, leaving the council, on the way back to Rome, he died. And you end up with a couple of short interim popes. But within a few years later, Charles of Anjou's best friend, the guy that had got him the French cardinal that had schemed to get him the kingdom down in the south gets appointed Pope Martin IV. And Pope Martin IV, for no reason whatsoever that anyone has ever found historically, first thing he did was he excommunicated the Eastern Roman Emperor and reignited the schism so that Charles could invade, which he did. Because it was forbidden for one Christian to invade another Christian without just cause, but you could invade an excommunicated person. So he excommunicates the emperor so that Charles can invade the Byzantine Empire. Charles loses, but that is where the schism comes back again, entirely for political, earthly scheming reasons. No. Though, at least... Dante put him all the way in purgatory, though. But he was doing a long, long time of penance over it. So he might not have been a terrible person. He might have just made some stupid mistakes and been weak. But who knows? I thought about adding on the Council of Constance, too, so that we could burn John Huss. But... But that seemed a bit much, so the Council of Constance will get skipped. Um, the 1300s and the mess of that will get skipped. So the next council, I believe, will be the Council of Trent, which is always fun. Any questions, comments, anything? Um. That would be Leon. Um, and actually, and that's an interesting thing, is even the word cardinal as a color, um, or we call the birds cardinals because they're red like the cardinals. And the, the word cardinal literally just means hinge. And this is where they did, they invented the idea of a cardinal, and a cardinal is simply someone that gets to vote in the papal conclave. Um, and so they were, um, and so they were the hinge that the papacy would swing on, is why they're called cardinals. And interestingly, back then, you had a whole bunch of different cardinals. You, would have, you had um, cardinal deacons, um, who were deacons who were cardinals. You had cardinal priests, who were just priests. Cardinal bishops, was a bit, I mean, obviously those are sort of self-explanatory. But you could actually have lay cardinals, too. That there was lay cardinals until, I believe, until the 1800s. Um, a few here and there. Um, usually the Pope of Rome, but the term Pope is kind of an Eastern term. They, they, they call the, the Archbishop of Alexandria the Pope of Alexandria, and the Pope of Rome the Pope of Rome. Who? 
I don't understand the question. Oh, they still have their apostolic succession. Well, the Pope, there's no Eastern Pope. There's only one Pope of Rome. I mean, um, Bishop of Rome. And they, but the Eastern bishops have apostolic succession too. Not necessarily to Peter, but other apostles. Um, I mean, so that's why the church this day says there's two churches. There's, I mean, actually, there's the, the West, the Catholic Church, but the Eastern Orthodox Church is still a church. They still have... Um, Apostolic succession. They still have all the valid sacraments. They still have all of that. They simply are not in communion with Rome in that they don't accept papal supremacy. And the Russian Orthodox Church is also a consistent apostolic succession. Well, I mean, every bishop, you could say, has different apostolic succession and that they're not necessarily to the same apostle, but, but they all have apostolic succession. But now, I mean, the problems with with reuniting the church now is it's not simply get Constantinople on your side but because they're so nationalized with the, the, the churches in the east now so the problem is you could get the Archbishop of Constantinople might reunite with Rome but that doesn't mean that the Archbishop of Moscow will and you get into the fact that the last four Arch patriarchs of Moscow have been KGB agents and tools of the government there, that the chances of that happening are not good. And then the problem is if they do that, then the Ukrainians certainly won't do it because they hate the Russians um, and vice versa. I mean, so it's, they've, since they've become so splintered and nationalized, it's all the harder now. Any last? Going once. Um, not so different that they would have to change anything. Actually, Pope Benedict said that they would not have to change a single teaching if they wanted to come back. So. Oh, did you realize in the, the papal supremacy argument? Yeah. Um, they like to argue that the Pope is first amongst equals, whatever that means. And I mean, and actually that was one of the things that the Second Council of Lyon that they affirmed was papal supremacy. And actually there was a good quote on that, but I don't know if I would be able to find it in time. Um, okay, yeah, here you go. This is what they signed, that this same Holy Roman Church itself has over the whole Catholic Church the supreme and full primacy and sovereign authority, which, is, which it humbly and truthfully recalls to mind. Um, the Roman Church received from the Lord himself with all fullness of power through blessed Peter, the chief and head of the apostles, of whom the bishop of Rome is the successor, and as before all else, the church is bound to protect the true belief so that it is what that whenever disputes arise about the faith, they must be decided by the judgment of that church. Anyway, they go on further, like they know in certain terms, but the monks win. All right. All right, Neo, so no last of the things, then we can close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. God our Father, you send your Son to the world to be its true light. 
Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life and baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.